Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The big theme, though, it is what is happening in emerging markets, with Turkey's financial markets very much sinking, the lira hitting a record low, bond yields hitting a fresh record high, the 10-year yield breaching 20%. For the first time ever, and yet investors are confronted with the sound of silence. The central bank and government so far seemingly nowhere to be seen. Joining us here in New York is Gabriela Santos, JP Morgan Asset Management Global Market Strategist. Good morning to you, Gabby. Good morning. So where are they? Where's the government? Where's the central bank? That's that's a big question, right? I mean, if, if we remember how this all started for Turkey, really it was mid-April when the dollar started to strengthen, and it really brought out the emerging markets that were seen as particularly vulnerable. Turkey being one of them, Argentina being another that's spoken of in the same breath with a similar current account deficit and U.S. dollar debt. Now, Argentina has taken steps, right, and big steps. It's raised interest rates. It's set up a a large fiscal austerity program. It sought help from the IMF, whereas Turkey... We haven't heard anything. And so that's where I think uh, sentiment uh, is very, very tricky in Turkey now. And we need to see some sort of steps from them in order to improve uh, investor sentiment. Have we entered the classic EM doom loop where the currency weakens markedly? Worries start to rise about the debt being financed. The doom loop? Do you know the doom loop, Tom? Welcome back, by the way. That's an entrance two minutes into the show. Do you start with good morning or just jump in? Doom loop? Do you know what a doom loop is? What is a doom loop? The feedback (laughs) loop, a negative, self-fulfilling feedback loop. You don't know what one's talking Sounds like about? like a traffic circle Do you want, do you want me Jersey. to spell this out for you? I think Mrs. Keene was mentioning that to me. <laughs> I think you were in the doom loop in the Keene household, but we can talk loop. about that in a moment. Continue on Has drinking. this become self-fulfilling, Gabby? In the sense of? The currency weakens, people start to worry about the debt being refinanced, and it feeds back into a weaker currency. So the weaker currency begets a weaker currency. Mm-hmm. And we have been seeing that, right? I, I would say for, for a few emerging markets over the past few months. And that's where you do need some sort of action to break that loop, yeah. right? For investors to feel like we are in a vulnerable position right now, but there are actual steps being yeah. taken to improve uh, so that the future looks yeah. a little bit brighter than it does right now. But the tapestry over that is this width between a booming United States and a few mm-hmm. selected economies mm-hmm. and everybody else. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I get the idea that select EM countries are idiosyncratic, but I know all of our audience is saying, yeah, but wait a minute, we're booming and they're not. At some point, that catches up with you, right? And and I do think that's one of the major drivers behind this very, very strong dollar rally we've seen since mid-April, the idea that the U.S. is booming compared to the rest of the world. But there's one thing that we can do, which is look in the rearview mirror and, and notice that dynamic. And there's another in terms of looking over the next 6, 12, 18 months and think, well, is this dynamic going to hold? Is the U.S. going to continue to boom so much compared to the rest of the world? And we would argue that 4% GDP was yeah. a one-time occurrence. That is not going to be the dynamic Can that be forward. done smoothly or do we get bruised? Brutal moves, assuming that. I mean, someday we're going to come out. Let's say you're right, and Bruce Kasman's right. And someday we're going to come out and go, oh, we're not going to do 3.8 or 4% GDP. The run rate's going to be 2.x or whatever it is. The assumption is that happens with controlled, measured moves and these other asset classes, including the stock market. Says who? 
So I, I do think there there is, to be fair, right, an understanding uh, in the investment community that 4% is, is not sustainable. Um, but there is still a bit of a focus on 3% growth over the next 12 months. But our view is that that is not a, a permanent shift in terms of potential growth, that we do yeah. decelerate down to 2% in the second half of 2019. And the sooner we start focusing on that, um, the, the smoother the process can be in terms of dollar adjustment yeah, and market adjustment. The, the thing, when you're advising clients on portfolio mix or what to do with new cash, et cetera, the, the, the basic idea is the United States, to borrow a phrase from Mr. Farrow, which I love to do, we're doom loop free, right? Um, doom is a, is a strong word. Um, no, it's used with the Yankees. <laughs> but other than that, we're doom loop free, right? Um, I do think that, uh, to use another D word, right, that there is a deceleration that we see in the U.S. over the next 12 and 18 months. And so U.S. assets, the shining star over the past six months, won't shine so bright in that kind of scenario compared to the rest of the world, especially if you compare it to emerging markets, which is coming from a, a very tricky spot there for many, many years and has the potential to keep accelerating um, over the next couple of years. What we're seeing in Turkey, do you see contagion risk? So at the moment, we do not, uh, right? And, and I do think that there is an understanding that Turkey is a very particular case here. We mentioned its vulnerabilities in terms of current account, dollar debt, as well as its, uh, we could call it unorthodox uh, approach <laughs> towards economic policy. I think that there is an understanding that other emerging markets are different. Um, there is an understanding that you know, we shouldn't uh, punish all emerging markets to that same extent. I thought it was really interesting what we got from China FX reserves overnight. Many people thought they'd see a decline. We didn't. We got a slight rise in China FX reserves. What's the signal you take from that, Gabby? So if we think about why we were so concerned about China's FX reserves, why this release took on a whole new <laughs> importance in our calendars, it was really during 2015 when we started to see a yuan depreciation and there was a concern that the Chinese government was using up a lot of its FX reserves to shore up the currency, to have a controlled depreciation of the currency, right? And so it's it's very, very positive to have seen over the past couple of years much more stable FX reserves. It sends the signal that there isn't an out-of-control depreciation in the yuan. So we do feel generally, I would say, okay with the outlook for China, especially yeah. in the second half of the year. We have seen a lot of uh, fiscal and monetary uh, easing over the past few weeks, and that should feed through to, to an acceleration in Chinese growth in the second half. Do you expect to see more? Half. Do you ex expect to see more? More easing? Yeah. I think, right, with China, it's always a bit of a balance between trying to ensure uh, some good economic growth at the same time, not give up completely on reforms of when we think about all of the credit that China has built up. So I think it's it's a tough balancing act. And as long as the economy starts to pick up, then the Chinese government won't want to do too much. I just, and just very quickly here, I mean, the VIX spiked down to 10.52 today. But once again, in the U.S. markets, all the doom and gloom guys have been wrong. Have you ever seen anything like this? Or like, it, John, to me, it's Friday. Everybody publishes on Friday their doom and gloom article of the week. And I'm sure sometime they'll be right. <laughs> but the fact is, dot twenty five five, the VIX is 11.01 .01 under uh, with a 10 handle earlier. I mean, how do you deal with that professionally? 
Because so, I know you're getting it from clients, right? We do. We do. <clears throat> and, and, and to be fair, we want to focus on the risks. We want to think through them. But at the same time, we also want to take a look at what current situations are, right? And yeah. if you look at the backdrop for the U.S. market, it's a solid economic backdrop. We spoke about deceleration, but it's still expansion. It's still growth. It's not recession. Um, and, and as a result, profit growth can continue at a very, very healthy pace. Yeah. Um, so we do try to think through the risks. The, the one we are still focusing on are, are trade tensions, um, but we don't want to react too rashly, right, as, as long as the current right. fundamentals look positive. Okay, well, this has been great. Gabriel Santos, thank you so much, greatly. Thank greatly you so much. Uh, this morning. John, I don't know what your favorite team is. I don't know what Steve Major's favorite team is, but I think you both don't like Arsenal, right? That's you true. bring in Mr. Major. I know Steve supports. It's West Ham, isn't it, Steve? That's right, John. You're How ha- are you? You're a happy man looking forward to the season? Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to the season. There you go. Steve Major, East London's <clears throat> finest. There you go. Yes, bring him in on low, low yield. I'm trying to teach you. Yeah. HSBC's global head of fixed income research joining us now. Steve, what are we getting wrong in the fixed income market still that you have to spend a lot of time explaining to clients? Well, the 5% number was, was quite funny this morning. Uh, I'm not sure whether the JP Morgan Research Department have written anything that has got a 5%. <laughs> I believe they have not. <laughs> And I was just wondering what would happen here, whether if Stuart Gulliver had done that, our ex-head, so now it's John Flint. If John Flint had done that, I wonder what, what would have happened here. What would you have so, said, Steve? What would you have said if um, well, there, if Mr. Gulliver had done that a couple of years ago? There's a, fair, there's a fair bit of work goes into these research reports, and they're done with some consideration. It doesn't make them right. We could always be wrong. But, you know, I'm beholden to my colleagues to justify everything I say and think, and if I go across the line they'll pull me back. So we've got a published number that's 2.3, and that number hasn't changed for the last 12 months, and every day of the week I'm out there defending it. The thing is with bonds, the forecasts aren't wrong until we get to the forecast date, and our forecast is for the end of this year and the end of next year, and I'm thinking, look, I'm not wrong yet. And to be right, you just need the yield to be lower than the forward is implying. So this year, we've had 150 trading days, and only on nine days did the U.S. 10-year Treasury close at three or above. So if you've been short of 10-year Treasuries, it's been quite painful for most of the time. You've given up the coupon. So look, 5%, it's a number. Um, The Fed says they're going to go to about three. They're not saying they're going to go to four. To have a 5% 10-year yield, the Fed's got to be at four and change, and you've got to have inflation going above the Fed's target, that might be a possible scenario for the future, but I wouldn't give it a probability weighting of more than 5 or 10%. I would attach a 40% probability to the idea that the Fed stops at one of the next two or three meetings. And you, when, you, when you weight all those scenarios up, you end up with a forecast that has a two-handle not a five handle. So, Steve, a lot to unpack here. Let's just pick up on the point yeah. about the Federal Reserve. What's going to prompt yeah. them? What's the catalyst for them to stop in the next two or three meetings? Well, look, the way I describe it, John, is there's been plenty already this year. It's like a bucket filling up. 
and at some stage the bucket just overflows. So if you imagine that bucket you've got, do you call it a bucket in America? I think we do. Uh, whatever it is. Yeah, a bucket. So <laughs> you have dropped what, what is this, Radio London? <laughs> yeah, so you have, you, have a, you have a leaking roof and you have drip, drip, you know, the drops of rainwater fill the bucket up. At some stage it overflows. For me this year, it started with FRA OIS, then there was the cryptocurrency collapse, then there was reverse VIX, and just about every emerging market sequentially has been in play. Is there a common denominator, I ask you? And well, the answer to me is yes. There's, there's a huge deleverage. The Fed is exporting a tightening of financial conditions around the rest of the world. And all of the tourist money that has flown from one game to another has been sucked out. So, so yes, the, the tightening of policy in the U.S. has consequences, and we can see it everywhere. You know, go to Turkey, go to, go to, to China. You know, have a look at what's happening in these markets. Yeah, they've all been. They, they, you know, in the last few months, it started with Argentina. It went through various points along the way: Mexico, Indonesia, India. Most recently, it's Turkey. That, that's the one everyone's talking about. But also China. All of these markets are in focus, and I think it's because of the tightening of financial conditions that the U.S. is exporting to the rest of the world. And so, you ask me what stops the Fed. I just think a few more drips in the bucket and it will overflow. And you know, the, the, the traditional reaction function would be a strong dollar. That's starting to happen in, in, some, in some ways. Uh, or it's the incoming data. And as there are a bunch of economists in the Fed who are looking at incoming data, it might take weaker data to bang them on the back of the head to wake them up. But, but to me, it's incredulous to just think that nothing happens. So, Steve, let's talk about how you should be positioning months. then. 2.30 on a U.S. 10-year. Well, how should you position look, elsewhere? Long duration in the U.S. You have to be long, long in the U.S. With a, with, with, with a continued flattening bias <clears> because, look, I'm not denying the Fed's going to hike in September. They might even hike in December, although we'll have to look at the post-midterm election environment. Right. We'll, have to, we'll have to look at what Italy does to this bucket of water that's filling up. Well, I'll go with a bucket Italian. of water, but Steve, this is important, and this is for Global Wall yeah. Street folks. Duration yeah. is the length of the bond. How brave yeah. are you to buy price higher, yield lower, is measured out the yield curve? How far out are you willing yeah. to go? Well, I'd, I'd keep going into the 10-year plus. You would go into 10-year plus? Yeah, 10-year plus. So the, the, the worry at the moment for, for people in the very long end, is that you've got some stuff coming up in September, October, around tax reform and how the pensions market is Right, okay, fine. So, so some people are worried about some steepening prices. And you're not, you're not concerned, it, Steve Major, about the fiscal it policy? It not It's a buying opportunity. Any cheapness is a buying opportunity. Look, look, 10 year plus this year, you've been pretty safe sitting there. You haven't had that many bad days this year. And you year. grab and the you coupon. The I get that, 295 you've got the yeah. coupon. Yeah, so you know, as long as you, you don't too much. I think the first few weeks of this year were bad right. for the bond guys, but but the last six months, so that takes me back into sort of late Jan, early Feb. Right, they've been fine, but the bond the bond how, has not moved. It's been in a range. How alone do you feel? I mean, I mean, do you feel like a lonely call here of lower yields? You and Gary, Schilling I do feel, I do, I do feel, I do feel quite lonely, and I've just, I've continued to add to my long position on weakness. So you know, I don't change right. the view, 
and, and actually, it's not because I've got my head stuck in the sand. It's because I believe it. And actually, in my experience, the best forecasts that we've ever had have normally involved us being quite lonely. And it's normally a good sign when when people start to say you're <coughs> wrong and and you start to look like a bit of a loony. When, when, when people think you're mad, then it, then it's normally a good sign. So, so we're oh. getting to the point now where we're the mavericks on our own, and I'm quite happy with that. You're giving Tom Keane some ideas here, Steve. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> Major, thank you so much. Really, we're going to lead our podcast, really I hope, today stuff. with this really, really wonderful really interview. We're going to have a lot of fun here. It's sort of like after the market. I know I'm supposed to talk Zillow or this or Turkish Lira. Forget about it. Citigroup has done a brilliant analysis of what is permeating your house. Now, for those of you of a certain vintage, uh, you know, there's a 78 record in the needle that you have to put in and, you know, it prick your finger. And then there was LPs and then there was cassettes and CDs and CDs were lousy. Then CDs were good. And now they're streaming. Citigroup has really looked at the state of the music business. Tom Singler joins us right now, head of their European media. Yeah, you media. forgot eight tracks, by uh, the way. Oh, yeah, excuse me. I forgot eight tracks. That was underneath the, um, the glove compartment as well. Tom, when you put this report together with five, six, seven Citigroup guys, what was the number one surprise with the new economics of the music business? Really cool. Thanks for having me, Tom. Yeah, I, I, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say there's two surprises. I think, you know, the, the, the first one actually was, I think we've got accustomed to the idea that the music industry was challenged. You know, we've heard a lot about how recorded yeah. music was under pressure. But actually, the, the, the music, music industry is in relatively good health. It's growing. In 2017, it passed its historic peak, which was 2006. Um, in the U.S., you know, consumers are spending... $43 billion a year on music in some way, shape, or form. The issue is um, only a tiny fraction of that goes to the artists. I think that's the, the, the real killer point from this. We, it, It's going up, but it's around right. 12% of, of industry revenues end up with the artists, which is much, much lower than you'd expect You know, the talent to be getting based on what we see in other industries. Well, this has been true, and it used to be 7%, and now it's up to a a weak double-digit statistic, but the bottom line is, am I right that in the modern music business, the talent only gets it from gate, from concerts, and that means it's only a certain percentage of the talent. If you're an artist that doesn't have gate, you don't survive, do you? Exactly right. I mean, the main main driver of it moving up over time is... Um is exactly that. It's uh, it's, uh, it's the rise in, um, in live events, and, and as you right. say, that disproportionately benefits the big artists. But what it also speaks to is the is the, just how complex this industry is. You've got we call it the blob, but you know the music industry. There are so many different intermediaries, all right. taking their own cut, and um, and that's really where we're we're likely to see disruption in our view. Where where is the disruption for record companies? It used to be. 20 or 30 record companies and there's always a maverick one uh like reprise records or you know a couple of the british record companies as well uh stigwood and that crew a million years ago but where are the record companies right now does anybody still care about columbia and the big red dot yeah no i think they're still, they're still very big um companies and still very important players um and certainly when we think about their control of catalog it's it's obviously very very strong but it really is a question about 
what's it going to look like in you know five, ten, fifteen years time? Remember those record labels. The big thing they had was you know they they owned recording facilities, which were really mm-hmm. difficult to 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 to, to organise yourself as an artist. But most artists can now record music right. on a laptop. You know they they owned manufacturing facilities to make the eight tracks and the vinyl that we were talking about. But mm-hmm. you don't need that because you can distribute right. online. And of course they owned marketing and um, distribution. Um, and obviously artists right. can do a lot of that work themselves. So it's it's really not about the the legacy business, which is still quite robust and the value of catalogue quite high. It's right. about you know, where's the business going forward? And, and, and do you as an artist really need to use a legacy record label in order to, to, to make money in recorded music? And, and increasingly, it, you know, the answer to that is, well, n- not really. Could the Beatles happen today? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, um, the Beatles, uh, you know, we're seeing lots of exciting new artists. It's a very dynamic and exciting time. I think the big thing is, you know, would the Beatles need to sign up with a um, with a with a with, yeah. a, with a record with label? Capital. Could they do it themselves? Yeah. And, then, and, then, yeah. and, and you're seeing a number of interesting artists that are doing exactly that. You right. know, uh, Macklemore, um, Chance the Rapper. These are all artists who've built their own direct to consumer business models and, right. and, and are much better off financially for it. I mean, I'm watching right now within our studios, folks, with a stack of TVs always keeping us abreast of the news and ad for Kenny Chesney of Nashville out with three or four opening acts doing the arena tour. I mean, those those rare acts are still bringing in tons of money, whether it was Ariana Grande at the Manchester concert or Mr. Chesney uh, doing it in New York City. I mean, the the, the big arenas still matter, don't they? Absolutely. I mean, the big the big driver of industry growth in the way that we define it, and certainly the big driver of artists' share of industry, right. um, is live events. Absolutely. And I think <clears throat> one of the things that is striking about the, the music industry as it stands is just how stratified it is. By, by and large, you know, record labels are still record labels. Concert promoters are still concert promoters. Right. Distribution right. platforms are still distribution platforms. And I think one of the big things that we think will happen uh, as disruption impacts is you'll see more vertical integration. And actually, right. live events is probably going to be the big area of focus and companies like Live Nation um, set to benefit from that because that's the area ultimately the artists are focusing on and right. it's ultimately the area that the other players in the music industry are going to want in, to bring into the fold. In the time we've got left, we've got Spotify, we've got Apple Music, we've got Amazon trying to get into streaming. Does Citigroup have a prediction of who wins the streaming battle? Um, look, well, the big point we make on streaming is, is simply that um, it's not clear any of them will ever make a really sustainable return. The big question is, of course, whether this matters for companies like Apple, um, Google, Amazon, Tencent. Um, it may well be that music is just a tool to drive engagement and loyalty for other parts of, the, um, of, the, of their platform. Mm. Uh, fundamentally, this makes life very, very difficult for the standalone players who have to try and make a right. return on, on, on the basis that um, it's a standalone business. And that, and that Two, we think, is a factor that will drive um, uh, vertical integration or at least a push towards it. The, right. the question, of course, is whether this is organic and happens slowly over time or is inorganic right. and involves um, M&A. What, what, uh, just one final uh, uh, question, if we could, and if you would brief us on YouTube. It's, it's been, there's YouTube TV now, which a lot of people have told me is too expensive in that. But can Google and YouTube play in the streaming world, or is it just sort of the haphazard feel of finding a song on YouTube that it seems to be right now? Yeah. 
Well, I, um, Alphabet or Google is uh, is covered by my colleague Mark May, but I, the point he makes is that you know, the 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 size of music within this sort of alphabet complex is relatively small. You know, YouTube generates about $17 billion of ad revenue. And we, re- we estimate about $3 billion of that is music-related. So it's you know, substantially less than 5% of the total. But, you know, it is, it is an important area of focus. Um, uh, yeah. They need to improve user engagement and time spent on the platform. And there are a lot of other players sort of pushing hard in that, in, 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 you know, to try and yeah. use music as, a, as I say, a, something to engage um, users on their platforms. So um, even though it's small beer um, economically, we do think it's going to be a, a key yeah. focus for the group. I congratulate you guys on going outside the box. It's great to see. I mean, there's a lot of these things that are contrived. This report from Citigroup is not contrived. It's a very serious look at, again, a $43 billion large uh, business. Uh, thank you, Tom Singlehurst, for joining us. And he mentioned Mark May, their internet Analyst Jim Suva uh, weighing in here as well, and Alicia Yap, as, uh, and, and many others as well on the music business from Citigroup. Uh, we protect the copyright of all of our guests. Please get that, uh, please get that uh, report from uh, your Citigroup representative. Tom Singlehurst with Citigroup. Thank you so much. We thought we'd drag Steve Eisman on on a summer's day, uh, really to talk about one stock. Of course, Mr. Eisman with Newberger Berman and uh, someone who uh, looks at things long and short as well. Steve, how did you discover Zillow? How did you, you know, within the, the matrix of 1,000 stocks or 5,000 stocks, how did you wander into Zillow? Um. You know, there are lots of different ways to find stocks. Sometimes you find them on yourself. Sometimes people give them to them, give them to you. Uh, this was a stock that's been covered by a, a cell site analyst named Brad Saffalo at a small boutique called PAA Research. I've known him for years. He's an excellent analyst. You know, sometimes he's right, sometimes he's wrong, but he's always incredibly interesting and does incredible yeah. research, and, and he put me onto this. What you heard there from Mr. Eisman, folks, is the way pros use the sell side. Whether they're right or wrong isn't the litmus test. They always want to be intrigued, right or wrong. Do you treat a stock that you're cautious on that you could short differently when it's a smaller stock like Zillow versus some ginormous company? Um, not necessarily. I mean, if a stock has a very, very heavy short interest, I tend not to want to let people know that I'm, I'm short. It has a, a fairly large short interest, mm. but I think it's uh, there's some things happening that make it incredibly ripe for being shorted. I mean, it's down significantly today, but I think it has much more downside. Well, okay. Short interest is about 13.5%. What about Zillow causes you to be bearish? Well, there are two things that came out that, 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 that I want to focus on two things. One thing that was discussed on the call and one thing that was not. So Zillow is, is largest business as you go on the website to look, for, look, look to buy a home. That's not what I want to focus on. They got into a business several months ago. They announced that they were going to go and invest their own capital and buy houses. And then the way I described it on your on your show two weeks ago, I said, and I said, and flipped them. And they had projected that they were going to generate about 20 
to $40 million in revenue this year. I'm sorry, 125 to $255 million in revenue this year, and they reduced it to 20 to 40. Um, just do I that again. So people, just do that again because people aren't writing it down, but, uh, but we are. Just do they the number again. They, were going, they said they were going to generate 125 to $255 million in revenue from this business this year, which they just started. And now they've lowered that guidance to 20 to $40 million. When asked on the call why, they said that they were giving people offers, but it was taking much longer for those offers to be accepted. Now, I, what I said on your show was I thought this was a horrible business because I thought this, it was cyclical, it capital intensive, um, and low margin. And after listening to that call, I take it back. It's not a horrible business. It's a business that is potentially disastrous because what they basically described is that they are offering consumers a free put. In other words, they give. A, let's say a consumer puts his house on on for three hundred thousand dollars. Zillow will offer a ten percent, let's say a ten percent discount, two hundred seventy thousand dollars. And what's happening is these are not distressed sellers, and these sellers are taking that offer and basically they're shopping it. They're looking for a better price. And essentially, what Zillow is doing is offering consumer, the seller a free put. The reason why this is so bad is that they're going to be horribly adversely selected. Think about it this way. The, the house, for most Americans, is the major store of their wealth. So Zillow shows up with that $270,000 offer. Now, why would a non-distressed seller sell their home for $270,000 if they're not distressed if the house is worth $300,000. There's only two possibilities for that. Either one, Zillow has mispriced the house, and it's not worth $270,000, it's worth less. Or there's something wrong with the house, and maybe on the surface it's worth $300,000, but it requires considerable repairs, and maybe it's only worth $250,000. And so the seller now accepts the... um, the, the price of Zillow, which is too high. So I cannot think of a single business ever that can function by offering sellers a free put. It'd be, it'd be like going to Goldman Sachs and say, hey, I own X amount of IBM stock. I want to buy some puts to protect my position. What will you charge me for them? And Goldman says, nothing. Well, of course, I'm going to take that. <laughs> that that is essential. Zillow is is creating. So why are they doing this? I mean, I mean, you, you describe something pretty straightforward. What I is, don't understand it. They think somehow they're going to crack some crazy code, but they, I don't think they understand that by offering a free put, they're being adversely selected. Now, let me just continue for a second because there's something that was not discussed on the call, which in some ways I think is equally as important. Um, on June 28th. Zillow did an equity offering, and they raised hundreds of millions of dollars. Between June 28th and, and August 6th, last night, there was considerable, in, there has been insider selling. And now, less, only a little bit more than a month after doing that offering, the company is, has reduced guidance significantly, and as of today, the stock is down right now 17.5%. Now, 
this is a little bit of what did they know and when did they know it. Um, Maybe they did not know that they were going to reduce guidance significantly on June 28th, but it seems to me that that's a question that needs to be addressed by management and was not raised on the call, and it needs to be raised. I think they raised about $370 million in that offering. Correct. And they, raised the it at 50, yeah. they raised it at $57, and the Correct. stock is now 48 Correct. Steve Eisman, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated uh, his thoughts on Zillow. We really focused there on one security uh, this time around. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.